Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies and produced in partnership with Public Books, an online magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship. I'm one of your hosts, Arthi Vade. From the beginning, Novel Dialogue has brought novelists and literary critics together to talk about novels from every angle, how we read them, write them, publish them, and remember them. This season, though, we're highlighting one angle in particular, how we translate them. And we're inviting a series of guests to talk about the role transition plays in their work as a theory and a practice. Today, I'm thrilled to have Bupakar Boris Diop and Sarah Quesada joining me to talk about translating African literature for a global audience. Mr. Diop is best known for, to English-speaking audiences anyway, for his novel Morambi, The Book of Bones, translated from the French by Fiona McLaughlin. This stunning novel, inspired by Mr. Diop's interviews with witnesses, takes readers into the 1994 Rwandan genocide through the minds of victims, perpetrators, and exiles. The novel is filled with memorable characters trying to make sense of the aftermath of atrocity and the ethics of its representation. Mr. Diop began his career writing fiction in French before his last two novels he has switched to writing in Wolof, the most widely spoken language in his home country of Senegal. He has also recently translated Ame Césaire's A Season in the Congo into Wolof. He has won a number of literary prizes, including the Prix Tropique, and in 2022 he was awarded the Neustadt International Prize for Literature for his body of work. Mr. Diop, we're delighted to have you here zooming in from Dakar. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm equally excited to welcome my colleague, Sarah Quesada, to the show. Sarah is a professor of Romance Studies at Duke University, and her new book will be coming out very shortly from Cambridge UP. It is called The African Heritage of Latinx in Caribbean Literature. Sarah regularly works across French and Spanish archives and is the perfect person to guide us through Mr. Diop's multilingual oeuvre. So Sarah, welcome and... I pass the mic to you for a conversation that goes from Durham, North Carolina to Dakar, Senegal. Thank you, Boris, for, for making the time. Well, Boris, I wanted to start out our conversation by asking you a question related to how you became a fiction writer. And perhaps it's not this journey wasn't necessarily what brought you into becoming a journey, uh, sorry, a fiction writer. But you did once say to me that in order for an author to write better, enhance their writing, one needed to become a journalist. Could you tell us a little bit about why you think this? I used to write with my, with my heart instead of writing with my head, with, with my mind. And uh, that's why uh, I took, uh, when I really started writing, yeah, I need to, to learn journalism because you have these, uh, these density of language, you have this conciseness. You can say a lot with uh, not uh, so much words. And uh, that's why uh, 
I uh, I just went to to a, to a, a school of journalism. You know, Toni Morrison actually mentioned once that your novel uh, writes with this difficult beauty that that uses journalism to translate the realities of the Rwandan genocide. And she says, I quote, Murambi verifies my conviction that art alone can handle the consequences of human destruction and translate these consequences into meaning. So for me, for example, one of the key moments of your novel, Boris, exemplifies this difficult beauty when we enter into the psychology of the genocide's leader, and that's Joseph Karakezi, who happens to be this learned, you know, wealthy doctor, well-established, but also one that becomes radicalized into ethnic hate. So would you mind reading the section in which this happens, this, this development of, of him? Let me learn a little bit more about him. Even, even during the best years, Joseph couldn't stand to see his enemies much wealthier than him. He looked down on them, knowing that uh, in their eyes, he was nothing, just a poor device with impressive diploma. He suffered a lot because of that. I saw it very clearly. When your father decided to become a powerful man, he knew that he would have blood on his hands. Since President Kaibanda's time, people were always killing Tutsi and then going home to play with their children. Tenth dead hundreds dead, thousands dead. They couldn't be bothered to count anymore. Little by little, it became routine. And your father must have said to himself, I am an important doctor. I'm not going to die like a poor bastard. Joseph Karikizi was never scared of anything or anyone. Besides, that's what it's like in our family, we are full-hearted. When a man like that decides to do evil, he's more dangerous than all the others. Thank you. Thank you, Boris. I mean, that's it's such a powerful moment in the novel. And for me, for example, one of the reasons it's powerful is because well, one sees how the quotidian develops quickly into the absurd and tragic as a, you know, this powerful man becomes radicalized by hate and then justifies the mass killing of ethnic communities. And then later the annihilation of one's people becomes well, like expected, almost normalized as if that too were a quotidian thing. So, so this absurd and tragic normalization of the strange reminds me of one of the most recognizable styles of Latin American writing, which is, of course, magical realism. So is there a sense of a Latin American quality to your work? In my uh, generation, I, 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 I think in the 70s, we, we read a lot uh, uh, about South American literature, and we read people like... Uh, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, Vargallosa, uh, Ernesto Sabato, who is my fa fa favorite writer, the Argentinian. And uh, uh, yes, but you know, I told you how I become a writer uh, reading these books uh, when, when I was a teen. And, but, but there is 
another part of, of the story I, 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 I didn't talk about. Uh, at the same time, in the same house, my mother used to tell us story. And you know, in Africa, these stories can't be told during the day. She told these stories during the night. So during the, the day, I was in the, in the library and uh, during the night, I was listening to my mother with uh, enthusiasm, with uh, really passion. And uh, these stories, they were pure magical reality. <laughs> of course, this world didn't exist at that time, but what I heard when I was young, and I was very, very impressed. I was more impressed by uh, what I heard from the storyteller, from my mother, uh, by what I read in the, in the library. And you see, yeah, it, here it's a kind of anticipation. Uh, you see, uh, the books, they, they were in French, but uh, the, the story my mother uh, told me, they were in Wolof. So I was really prepared very, very early to shift from, uh, from French to, to Wolof. What you're, what you're relating is really sort of a lived experience that again precedes this thinking of magical realism as, as Latin American when it's in fact finding its roots elsewhere before. So that's fascinating. I mean, you also mentioned um, this, 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 this aspect of Wolof, uh, the, the Wolof novel in your work, um, Boris. And, and in terms of translation, I wanted to also ask you a question about, about that transition that you make between writing, because you started out writing your novels in French and then transitioned into writing them in Wolof and your Wolof novels have then been translated perhaps more widely in English than they have been in French. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, why that is, why it is that your Wolof novels are translated more widely into English than they are in French. And then also why for you as one of the most prominent Senegalese writers of our time, why is it important for you to write your novels in Wolof and then have them translated? Okay, you know, I, uh, I shift from French to, to Wolof uh, for many reasons, but one, one of them, I won't say the most important reason, but one of them, yeah, is because I went to, to Rwanda in uh, 1998. And in fact, I, keep, I, I, I kept going to Rwanda. In fact, tomorrow I will go to Kigali. So um, there's a connection between the genocide, my experience of Rwandan genocide, and the fact that I uh, decided to, to write in my mother tongue, which is, uh, which is Wolof. And uh, uh, I wanted to do it uh, for a very long time, but I thought, yeah, I wasn't competent for that. Yeah, it, it wouldn't work because uh, I read so many books in French, and I didn't. I, and I didn't uh, read uh, uh, so much in, in, in Wolof. 
maybe uh, that, that's why. But when I went to Rwanda, I said, you know, these happened in Rwanda. Uh, a French state, a big player, was involved. And uh, uh, France was involved because uh, of uh, uh, they wanted to, to protect. Uh, yeah, uh, they don't want uh, Rwanda to become an Anglophone country. It was about defending French language. And yeah, my uh, uh, French is, uh, uh, I wrote all my books, all my novels in French. Yeah, I feel a kind of, of uh, disgust, of uh, content. And I said, I know it will be difficult. Maybe it uh, will be even impossible, but I have to try. And I started writing in, uh, in Wallow. And when I, uh, when I did it, uh, I learned a lot, a lot, a lot about my own writing. Um, could you say a little more about the experience of writing in Wolof versus the experience of writing in French and how, how it feels to become confident in your, uh, your vernacular language? I don't know if you would consider French or Wolof both native tongues, if you could talk a little bit more about your relationship to both languages as a writer. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Senegal is a very strange country when it comes to our relationship to, to France. Our first president uh, wrote, he, he was a poet and a very good one. He wrote in French. Uh, French is the official language uh, here in Senegal. And uh, President Senghor's successor, Abdou Diouf, became the boss of Organisation Internationale de la Francophonie. So many people, they, uh, they think that in, uh, in, uh, in, 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 in Senegal, uh, everybody uh, speaks French. In fact, here, nobody French. Please come here <laughs> whenever you want. You don't be, be speak one. So as a writer, that's very simple. When you, when you write in French, you write, that's what I discovered. When, when, when I started writing in, uh, in Wolof, you write in a language you never hear in your daily life. To put it uh, uh, this way, I, uh, I can say, when I start writing in French, I, I shut the door, I shut the window, and I tell the words of my people, you are not welcome. Don't enter, I don't need you. So that's why, uh, uh, and now, now, wherever you go in Senegal, people, they speak well. So the difference is that when I write in France, I don't hear the words I'm writing. When I write in Wolof, I hear everything, every word. So it sounds that for you, uh, writing in Wolof speaks to the true 
essence of, of a worldview that would otherwise not be available if you were to write it in French. Am I right to, to say that, to, to come to that conclusion? Mm-hmm. My, my question then is, it sounds that translation becomes in many ways an ally to a Wolof worldview be, by virtue of its accessibility, right? And to, even to say Senegalese living in the diaspora. Uh, but my, but on the flip side, what might be lost when your novels and well have become translated into what really is a colonial language, whether it's French or English? It's very, very difficult to translate from Wolof to French and the other way around, from French to, to Wolof. I did it with uh, M.A. Césaire. Uh, a season in the Congo, uh, but it's much more difficult from when when you try to translate from uh, uh, from Wolof to, to to French. When I when I when I published Domigolo, my first Wolof novel, uh, someone in France uh, tried to um, to translate it. A specialist, I was very happy. I was I was very very proud. And uh, uh, yeah, she gave me a sample, the two first chapters. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, it was a disaster. And uh, I, asked, I asked him to, to stop. And uh, that, yeah, oh yes, yes, you know, it's too serious. I asked him to stop very, very kindly, but I, 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 I did it. And uh, I started translating uh, Domigolo in, uh, in, in, in French. And uh, here in Senegal, what people say, yeah, it is that there's really the, the world of novel is much, 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 much better than uh, the French translation. But as we all know, there's always something lost in translation. And uh, uh, my last novel, it, it is set in uh, Nigeria, and uh, I'm, it's called uh, Malanum London in Wolof. Uh, yeah, in English, it, it could be uh, yeah, a story from the darkness, something like that, Malanum London. And I'm translating it with... Uh, with a, with a French woman. She's French. She learned Wolof. Uh, she know Wolof very, very well. She speak it. She read it. Her thesis, it was, uh, uh, was about uh, uh, the Wolof novel in, in general, not only my, my books. And uh, I think uh, it will be a very, very interesting topic. So, so translation doesn't necessarily harm the cos the 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 cosmopolitan or the worldview that your Wolof novels seek to convey, and the, and in fact that they they allow your Wolof novels to stand in relation to or in dialogue or even in, in difference with with these novels that you have just described. Is that a correct assessment? Yeah, I think it is mostly a question of 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 reader. Uh, yeah, the, 
French uh, of, 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 of rhythm, of rhythm, rhythm, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, French, uh, um, world of language is very, very, um, um, French doesn't like, for example, repetitions. They don't like that. In Wolof, you repeat every time. When you say something, you repeat it again and again. And people, and people, they listen to what you are saying. That's lost uh, in, uh, in French. But, but I tried to, I did my best, yeah, to, to stick to the uh, Wolof version when I translated uh, Domigolo. And someone uh, said to me something very, very bizarre, very, very strange. She's an academic from Milan, a woman uh, by the name of uh, Yana Nissim. She knows very well my work. In fact, yeah, I, I can say modestly that she's a specialist of my literary uh, work. And she said, Boris, uh, Les Petits de la Gueno, which is the uh, translation of Domigolo, that's your first African novel. Do you agree with that assessment? Yes, I think I agree with that. <laughs> Maybe I, I shouldn't confess it, but I think it's true. <laughs> yeah, I felt it, in fact. So that's, that's, it's because I felt uh, it was true that it was uh, so striking for me. It was my kind of uh, a kind of secret. I knew it, but I but I thought nobody would uh, would see this. But it's true. And in that regard, I wanted to return to um, to a question that involves both memory and and also this translating effect. So so in your in your work. There seems to be a return to sites of memory, uh, sites of memory that are charged with a particular meaning or what Marianne Hirsch terms like these points of memory that puncture through layers of oblivion or what Pierre Noat terms lieu de mémoire, right? And we, we've talked about how your work um, has been translated into different languages and the politics of translation, et cetera. But I, I think that what your work also does and really effectively is that it translates the emotionally charged physical places, materiality, into a textual form, as if materializing the, the evanescence of a charged emotional response to, visit it, to visited sites. And in Murambi, we see this, this eagerness of the main protagonist to always return to the memorial grounds, whether it's Kigali or Murambi, these memorial grounds of the genocide uh, where the conflict started. So my first question is, why, why do we seek these memory sites? Why is there an eagerness to return to these sites of memory? And second, why is it so important in your work to translate the physical sites of memory, Kigali, Murambi, et cetera, into the textual? And that's, of course, your novel. Yeah, it's uh, mainly because they were there. They were everywhere. You know, one more than one million people were killed in uh, three months. So it was done somewhere. Uh, in the 60s, in the, in the 70s, you had massacres. That's what uh, uh, my character said in, uh, 
in the passage, in the passage I, 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 I read. Uh, and uh, when there was killings, the Tutsi, they used to, to go to hide in, uh, in churches. And uh, churches were just safe place. After the killings, they could back home. They were enough lucky to survive. But in uh, 1994, uh, the killer's mindset had changed. This time, they said, yeah, it will be the final solution. Like uh, Alison Defort put it in one of her books, let no one tell the story. The first place I went was what they call, you have the sites, that's how they call it in French, les sites du génocide, the sites of the genocide. And bodies, uh, it was four years after the genocide, but the bodies were there. There are so many of them. What to do with that? And uh, that's why uh, in, my, uh, in, my, in, in my novel, you have uh, Murambi. It's a place where, uh, where I kept going. I went many, many times to Murambi because I was so, I was so charmed. I was so, so impressed. So, and uh, why, you, in fact, they had no time to deal with that. So many, uh, so many dead bodies, but they could even try. But they said, no. When these people were killed, nobody didn't care. They called for help. Nobody uh, accepted to, to come to do, to do something. So, we will leave them here. People will come from all over the world. They will see it, and that's important. And now, Rwanda, Kigali, has, has changed. When, uh, I, when, I, when I went there, it was an open space. It was an open cemetery, bodies everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere. Now, now you have just like in New York. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's just like that. You have you have huge buildings. The city has a new face, and for me, uh, this this change says something. And uh, um, uh, I tell my uh, Rwandan friends, it's like the Rwandan state wants to, to hide the crime scene. So Sarah and Mr. Diop, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And this season, Novel Dialogue is asking every writer and translator on the show a question, and we're going to collect the answers for our website. So, Mr. Diop, is there a word or concept that you consider untranslatable or very difficult to translate? I have a feeling you have many to choose from, but what would you like to share with us? Very difficult, yes. Untranslate, 
table, I'm not sure, but very, very difficult. And if the wall of war, Kerok. Kerok. T-A-R-O-O-G. Kerok. And it means at the same time, uh, yesterday and tomorrow, the past and the future. Uh, even many uh, wall of speakers are not uh, aware of the particularity of, of the war. You have something similar, Ejo, in Kenya, Rwanda. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, uh, it has the same signification. But, but if you try to, to translate uh, Kerok has Ejo, you miss something. Because the way it means yesterday or uh, tomorrow, the past or the future in Wolof is completely different from the way it means. Ejo means yesterday and tomorrow. And uh, don't even try to translate uh, Kerov in English or in Italian, or <laughs> it, will, uh, it will never work. I think it will there, never There's an imperfect. Because it's a link to the context, yeah. I was going to say there's an imperfect um, equivalent in Spanish, which is ahorita, which people would think, me, which is ahorita in Spanish, which is now, but with a, with a in a smaller version. I can't, it's untranslatable, but the people think it means now, but really it means in the future. <laughs> it's always very confusing to people. <laughs> it, it, it means always now or always in the yes, future? Yes, exactly. Uh, sometimes it means now and uh, uh, some other times it means uh, uh, tomorrow. Wow, such an interesting word in light of the discussions of memory we have had today um, and thinking too about in some ways how we draw distinctions in time, past, present and future and maybe when we shouldn't draw those distinctions in time. Do we have a language for that? Well, thank you for giving us two words that might get us closer thank to the yeah to the relationship between present, past, and future. So, as we oh yes, as we approach the end of another novel dialogue, we'd like to thank the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship, Public Books for its partnership, and acknowledge support from Duke University. Hannah Jorgensen is our production intern and designer, and Connor Hibbard is our sound engineer. Look out for episodes featuring Yanga, Alia Trebuka-Zaran, and Anne Goldstein, translator extraordinaire of the Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferrante. So from all of us here at Novel Dialogue, thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.